Hey guys, this is episode 116 with Cheryl Scully. Do you know who Cheryl Scully is? If you don't, you should. She was the keynote at the May 23 FCC May conference, and she was the keynote for a very good reason. Noted author with an Amazon number one bestseller. She has a resume that is unbelievable. She turned around a city that was about to go bankrupt. She talks about how she sought out talent, how she set clear goals, how she drove a city from being an underperformer to a AAA bond rated performer for 10 straight years. A phenomenal interview, a phenomenal former city manager, and really somebody you should study and get her book. It's called Greedy Bastards, one City's Texas-sized struggle to avoid a financial crisis. It's the kind of thing you're going to want to read if you want to improve who you are and how you handle your profession. Cheryl Scully was a great interview. I really enjoyed this one. Greetings, I'm Steve Van Cor, and this is the FCC May Podcast, a service produced by and for the Florida City and County Management Association. I'm your host, and each episode we interview a city or a county leader who's in a position to share interesting and useful insights into the operations of local government here in the Sunshine State. Now, if you have someone you would like to nominate as a guest for the podcast, send their information to me at svancor at vancorjones.com, or you can message FCCMA on Facebook. Well, today's guest is is a little different. Now, if you were at the May FCC May conference in 2023, you saw Cheryl Scully from Texas uh, give the keynote presentation. Well, if you weren't there, this is an opportunity for you to hear, I mean, truly, truly one of the best in the business, award-winning, uh, Amazon number one best-selling author about her city experience in San Antonio. I mean, this is the gold standard uh, of our of our guests. And if you were at the conference, there's a great opportunity for you to re-catch up again with Cheryl. Cheryl, thank you so much for being on. Well, thank you, Steve. I'm happy to be here. Well, it looks like they finally kicked you out of San Antonio and now you're in Austin. <laughs> well, they didn't kick me out and I'm still connected. I'm still serving <laughs> a couple of nonprofit boards there, but I'm teaching in Austin at the university. So uh, that's why we moved up here. Plus, our son and his wife live here. So closer to family, too. Isn't that funny how just being close to family really makes a difference? It uh, does. I moved to Tallahassee, and within seven years, uh, my my wife's family all moved down here, and my family all moved down here. And I'm like, well, now I can't leave if I wanted to. Yeah, uh, there you, you teach, go. By the way? Pardon me. What do you teach? Uh, public management at the LBJ School at the University of Texas. Something, um, something you know a little bit about. Yeah, it's uh, it's been a great experience. I actually taught at the LBJ School 10 years ago while I was city manager of San Antonio. I, I taught a graduate class on Tuesday evenings, uh, would drive up after work, teach a three-hour class. Uh, I must have been out of my mind uh, doing that. Uh, it's about an hour from San Antonio to Austin. But uh, in the process, I was able to hire a number of really bright, young, new people to join the City of San Antonio organization. So in addition to teaching, I was also recruiting. And many oh, students are still working for the city. Well, how of long of a commute was it? A little over an hour. I got to tell you, I... I I similarly, I'm an adjunct at Florida State in a graduate program, and um, 
I can barely make it home, you know, because you're like you said, three hours. My class is two and a half hours. At the end of the two and a half hours, you've given it all away, man. You're up there performing uh, everything but the sock puppets. Yeah, it was a long day, but I'm I'm an old marathon runner, so endurance is my specialty. <laughs> oh, there you go, there you go, and that says a lot, especially uh, uh, being a marathon runner. As you know, you got to put 30, 40 hours a week into being on that asphalt. Uh, not an easy, not an easy gig. Yeah, uh, not easy at all, and uh, I'm paying for it now. <laughs> <laughs> well, take up cycling. Um, the uh, so you talked a little bit about at the conference. You talked about leadership. Um, give us an introduction of what you mean by that, because everybody has a, a slightly different term, and and how you were able to use those skills in in building a rebuilding a dysfunctional city. Yeah, it's um, everyone is a little bit different in this regard, but for me, it's not about creating followers at all. Uh, It's about creating more leaders and giving people the space, uh, the resources, uh, the ability, and the support to be able to make the kinds of changes and improvements and experiment, um, not be haphazard or cavalier about it, but uh, to try some new things uh, and uh, to take on some big challenges and know that you have the support of leadership to be able to do that. Uh, So in my case, um, I I asked a lot of questions and one of my staff said to me once, she never really told me what to do, but she asked so many questions. It was helpful for me to figure out what I needed to do by the questions that she was asking me. Oh, interesting. uh, Considering how to go about some major changes in departments. And I want people to be able to think for themselves but also support them and give them guidance and coaching. And that's really what a city manager does. Um, you know, when I went to I mean, San Antonio is a massive city. You had a large. It's, it's the seventh largest city in the U S by population. Um, and I spent the last 30 years of my career um, in the two largest council manager cities, Phoenix and San Antonio. Phoenix is the largest San Antonio, second largest council manager city. and um, those those are big and different organizations. Um, in Phoenix, mayors would leave uh, to run for governor or higher state office. Um, in San Antonio, even uh, many of my council members ran for the state legislature, Texas legislature. Um, one of my mayors uh, tried to run for president. Uh, of the United States. And so uh, the politics are different and very complicated. And so uh, the city manager has to be astute and also help the executive staff understand the environment within which we're working. In our form of government, of course, we are non-political. I work for Republicans, Democrats, independents, um, and yet we have to be politically savvy to understand what's happening. That's a good contrast. I've never heard somebody put it that way. You have to be a partisan, nonpartisan, bipartisan all at the same time and completely apolitical because you're just trying to do the work of the government. But yet the people you serve on the one side are all politicians. The public just wants the government to work and you have to be both apolitical and very political at the same time. I never heard anybody put it quite like that. Uh, I 
I, I like to describe it as being politically savvy and understanding the environment and, and how to switch gears and help elected officials understand uh, what the staff are trying to accomplish and the improvements we're trying to make. They too want the government to work well. They also want to get reelected. And sometimes those two things are in conflict. So it's up to a city manager to help them navigate through that. When you came into San Antonio, you had a pretty dysfunctional organization um, and it's a very large organization. What did you do to institute change and make it better? Yeah, the first thing I did was to uh, understand the city's financial situation, number one. Uh, secondly, to assess talent. Um, I was there for the first nine months before I could get a financial statement. And at the time, it was a $2.5 billion municipal corporation. Uh, they had tried to implement a financial system unsuccessfully. Um, I removed the finance director had to find, identify someone within the organization who had the skill set to be able to uh, take over the finance department. He is still the finance director today. Actually, I created a CFO position and uh, he is involved in not only the finance department, but human resources and purchasing those administrative important functions of the organization um, and still there today. But getting the financial house in order, which we did. It took about nine months, but uh, we did that. And then set some goals to become one of the best financially managed cities in the country. Um, I remember one of the staff at the time said, are you sure that's something we can accomplish? Okay. And uh, I said, why would we not? Set what, would, what would the metrics be for determining that you're one of the best? Well, one, one of them, for example, is our general obligation bond rating. The city of San Antonio had issued small bond programs over the years, taken those to the voters, and yet it was a large city, 500 square miles, more than 4,000 miles of streets, and so there are $100 million bond programs. $100 million is a lot of money, don't get me wrong, but by contrast, in Phoenix, similar-sized city, just slightly larger, I was in charge of billion dollar bond programs. And so, and that's a new city uh, with newer infrastructure. So San Antonio was behind in terms of streets and sidewalks and parks and libraries and fire stations. Um, infrastructure needed a big improvement. So we worked very hard to get our financial house in order and were able to, within four years, achieve a AAA general obligation bond rating, the highest bond rating uh, for any municipality. And all three of the major rating services, Standard & Poor's, Moody's, and Fitch, awarded us uh, AAA ratings, which we held for more than a decade. And the city still has a AAA rating. But what do so you it, do? What do you do to get there? What, what did you yeah. undo? What, what was broken that you had to fix? Uh, first of all, to get um, our financial reporting and data analysis in order. Uh, secondly, um, to make sure that we had adequate reserves and that we were budgeting appropriately. Um, I thought San Antonio was very under-reserved. Uh, we set a goal uh, in about 2006 or seven, shortly after I arrived, to achieve a 10% geo bond um, 
uh, general obligation reserve of 10% of our general fund budget, which was about a billion dollars at the time. And uh, so um, we achieved that and then budgeted um, with proper contingencies, did not overexpend. Departments were managed to budget. I met with our financial staff, um, they probably tell you on a nearly weekly basis, but monthly to review our financial standing and all, all of our accounts. Uh, and then quarterly with um, uh, all of our department heads. And so financial management became uh, integral to the organization. We also developed policies for the city council to adopt with regard to their preferences, with regard to property taxes and increases or decreases. I actually recommended and the council approved lowering the city's property tax rate four times while I was city manager. And yet we were able to undertake these very large bond programs. We did more than 2 billion in GEO, general obligation bonds during my 14 year tenure as city manager and another over a billion dollars for the airport and convention center and, and other enterprise funds. And so uh, we did that without tax increases because we were very uh, meticulous with regard to our financial management of the system. So it sounds to me like you set a big goal, right? You put the bright spot on the wall, uh, as they say, and then you, you know, and that was getting our financial house in order here's the metrics we want to go after. And then, so clearly stating, clearly articulated goals, and then meeting on a regular basis, putting the right people in place, and then meeting on a regular basis to meet, to let people know it wasn't just something you threw out there, that we're going to constantly drumbeat our way towards that. Am I capturing that correctly? Yeah, you are. And in addition to that, um, the finance department was somewhat, dysfunctional. I brought in an organizational development. Wait, wait. We're on a we're on an audio cast only. I wish you guys could have seen that face for just a moment. She said dysfunctional and laughed and cried at the same time. But go on, Cheryl. <laughs> yeah, it was um it was a really tough situation. Um we moved everyone out of position in the finance department. Um reconfigured what the structure should look like. Fewer staff, but at higher skill levels, had everyone reapply. Many people did not get back into the department. Uh, it did have all new leadership at the uh, department head level, mid-management level. Uh, and the other people, I, I didn't have to lay anyone off. I either found them positions elsewhere that fit their skill set at a lesser level, or they found jobs outside of the organization. They saw the handwriting on the wall. Doesn't that send a, a really, a, a, one of my dear friends, he passed away last year, uh, Peter Antonacci, was that person. He'd come into an organization, assess the talent, um, and keep the good ones, get rid of the bad ones, reassign the misplaced ones. But everybody kind of got the joke that, hey, if you don't perform, you know, so if you have somebody who's a good performer, you can make them a great performer merely by knowing we're not accepting status quo here. I mean, it, it sounds like you did that. Plus, I'm guessing through all this, you have a really good nose for talent. 
You know, I didn't, when I went to San Antonio, I would not have identified that as my strongest strength, but it emerged as one of my strongest strengths, really, um, when I, as I did this. And the, one of the first people I had to hire was a new police chief. It's not something a new city manager wants to be doing. The very first position hiring a city manager, I mean, a, a police chief. I, you know, you don't know the organization, you don't understand the community necessarily, um, but that police chief that I hired um, in early 2006, I'd only been there three months, turn, is still the police chief today. Wow. How many major cities have police chiefs that last that many years? I think one, I think San Antonio. <laughs> well, he's he's beloved in the community. He's very smart. He's doing a good job. Um, we still communicate. Uh, I still call him my chief. Uh, I guess I can since I hired him, but um, he he's doing a great job. So yes, you have to be able to uh, identify good talent, but I'll tell you something else um, uh, that I did in the process with, and I'll, I'll use both departments, finance, I did an all-staff meeting, and I said, look, some of you are ratting on each other. You're calling the media. You're giving columnists dirt on somebody. Um, I, and I said, you don't understand that that doesn't make just that person look bad. It makes all of us look bad. It makes you look bad because you're a part of that organization. I told them what I was committed to do, new leadership, a better department, uh, strong financial policies for the organization and accountability. And I asked them to be on board with that. I also promised them because they were in a dilapidated warehouse building with no windows. <laughs> no one wanted to work there. Yeah. Uh, I said, I will find you office space. It won't be class A office space, but it will be clean, well lit, and you will enjoy coming to work. Um, and we accomplished all of that within one year. And then to reinforce it, I met with that smaller group of higher skilled people, convened again one year later and said, okay, here's what we committed to do. Here's what we accomplished. Let's celebrate. And we just had breakfast tacos and talked for an hour that morning and it reinforced. And then they understood, okay, she's serious. She said she'd do something and she does it. We had a, and we had a, Sam Silverstein talked about setting your values is one thing. It's important, but living your values. So if you say, hey, these are my goals and we make them, celebrate achieving those goals and letting Absolutely. them know. Yeah. Absolutely. And we don't we don't do that enough. And and with the police chief, you know, when I went to San Antonio, they said, You're an outsider. Um, you have to hire somebody from here. The person has to be black, has to be brown, has to be this, has to be that, all these things, you know, privately telling me. And so I convened three community panels of people from all walks of life, including the union president sat next to the Chamber of Commerce CEO and the neighborhood leader and the LULAC president and the NAACP executive director. Uh, and the gay lesbian community representative from the Stonewall Democrats, and they were all together, and they interviewed. <laughs> and they interviewed. It sounds these, like it ends up at the OK Corral, but go ahead. Well, it didn't, well, and and I wanted them not to pick the chief. I mean, I interviewed the eight finalists that we had. We had four internal, four external national candidates, but 
um, the point was to have everyone see all the candidates and then identify for me strengths and weaknesses of the candidates from their vantage point. At the end that night, I had three community panels of these kinds of mixtures, and um, I had a staffer, one of my executives, chair each panel to keep them all honest, not, not ask inappropriate questions. Uh, and that night, even my staff going into the process said, you can't go outside. We tried that once. It didn't work. But I knew the internal candidates were weak, um, having worked in a couple of other states and major cities. Um, and so we went through the process and um, recruited William McManus um, from outside of Texas. But everyone on the panel unanimously said he is by far the best. And we're embarrassed that our candidates, our internal, don't measure up to these national candidates. And so for me- so It became it, their decision, not your decision. In part. And it, it was about then when they go back to their organization and someone says, can you believe that new city manager hired this guy out of Minnesota? They, they could say, hey, wait a minute. I was uh -huh. on the interview. I was part of that process. Yeah. And, and he was by far the best candidate. And, and so it, it was twofold. You know, it was to help me and to get input from them. And I, I wasn't certain as to how it was going to come out. Now, after I interviewed all eight finalists, it was pretty clear to me that Bill was the best, but they too unanimously said, I know you didn't ask me to tell you who to hire. However, he is really good. And, and so it helped me in the process then because they became advocates. And, and so you have to think through strategically, okay, we've got this tough, and that's a very public position. And Police chiefs can make and an emotional position, a, a position where Absolutely. different groups want to be represented, because in theory, the police chief guides, you know, a lot of those policies, which can have which can be explosive. Yeah. Yeah, very much so. I want to ask you a question about your um, your nose for talent. Any tips? I mean, there's some things that people are just instinctively good at. And what, you, what I usually find is, and I think we see this through life, someone's instinctively good at it, and so they hone those skills, right? Someone who's naturally fast tries out for the track team in sixth grade, seventh grade, eighth grade, and then they end up becoming a, a top-notch runner because they take that natural talent and they hone it through training and exercise and good coaching and good diet, nutrition, et cetera, and lots and lots and lots of practice, he said to the marathon runner. Um, the... What skills can you would you share with us about spotting good talent? Because I think if one of the variables that's critical to being a good city manager, if you could have a magic wand and say, what do I want? Spotting good talent, knowing how to get that person on your team. Some pointers on how you do that. Well, a couple of things. And I encourage uh, people in the profession to get a diversity of experience. So when I started, um, many years ago, many decades ago, there were very few women. And those women who were in city management were mostly in positions of human resources or the social services. And, and those are important functions for a city organization. But I chose to work in areas of finance and budgeting and engineering, capital construction, uh, public safety. I wanted to work in those non-traditional areas 
so that people understood that women can't, don't have to be relegated into those other functions. And it also gave me experience to work in those fields. Now, there were things that I gravitated to that I was best at, but I really think it's good to have to expose yourself. And I tell young people, step outside of your comfort zone and work on something that you, you may not think you are good. Because yeah, it's really easy to go do the things you want to do. Yes, it is. Like doing, yeah. And that's important to, you know, work on those things that you're very best at. Um, I remember a, uh, a staffer in, in Phoenix once said, were you a general contractor in a previous life? He said, you are the best project manager I've ever, ever met. And uh, um, I, I said, no, but um, I am a stickler on bond programs. If we have 150 projects to complete, we're going to get those done well within budget and on schedule. And I'm a stickler for that. And my staff knew that was important, not only to me, to the organization, but to the community, because they didn't have confidence in the city to get those kinds of things done. And I have to focus on that with that which is most important. I tell my staff, a city manager and a department head can get pulled off in a dozen directions in a day, maybe even two dozen directions in a day. But I'd always keep a list of what are the most important things that I need to accomplish for this city. And if I'm not spending at least 75% of my time on those things, then I'm not get, I'm not doing the right thing for this city organization. And so, you know, you can get pulled off into this catastrophe or this personnel issue or, or this new project or idea. That oh, yeah, just, you, you tell people, all the, just answering your emails could become a full-time job. It could if you're not be. accomplishing the goals of the organization right. just by clearing out your inbox. You sound like a person who works with intentionality on everything you do. That, <laughs> I, I, we're going to set clear goals. We're going to execute those clear goals. We're going to we're going to accomplish these things. We're going to focus on those things. But let me take you back to the question, which is: I know we kind of got drifting off because this is a lot of fun. But what are some of the tips on how to hire good people? And let me tell you why I'm asking this. This is obviously for the podcast, but purely for selfish reasons. I am terrible at hiring people. In fact, I have two small businesses, and I am not allowed to hire anybody because I don't do it the right way. I usually feel sorry for the person or oh, I, I think don't work out or I really like them. What do, what do you, you have a clear nose for talent? You have put people into these places and I keep hearing not just intentionality. Oh, but they're still there. The finance director is still there. The police chief is still there. That's no accident. How did you, you explain the process with the police chief, but give me some pointers on how do you spot and develop real talent? Well, spotting talent, um, is not always easy. And I, you know, my record isn't perfect on this. I will say that my animal control director position was filled probably a half a dozen times during my 14 years. <laughs> Hiring uh, someone in charge of animal control was tough and we didn't always um, hire the right person. But uh, making sure that you totally vet the person's background, you understand. Um, not only their experience and competence level, but what their passion is, um, what their past integrity uh, experience has been. Uh, 
um, how they work well as a team. You know, so much of what we do as a city is not in, and I've I've worked for years to try to take down silos. Yeah. You have to be able to identify people who can work well as a team because so much of the work that we do is interdisciplinary. And, and so having that list of those things that are most important for this type of position and making sure that you interview and vet that, and then using different techniques in the process, you know, we, we would do the um, strengths finder uh, questionnaire where we identify people's strongest strengths and we did that as an organization, and uh, we would. Do you do this before you interview somebody or after? Um, actually, in the process, we'll interview and do some testing on what their strengths are. You can't have everybody who's a dominant, you know, go charging, hard charging person. You need to have a balance of people in the organization. Depends on what the department, what it has been in the past, what kind of change that you want. Um, so having that kind of testing to see, wow, this person's good, but boy, are they brash. They're just going to rub people the wrong way. And I've interviewed a number of people over time who I could personally worked with, but did not fit the values and the culture of the organization. They would have been a bit too disruptive. Interesting. I, I could I feel them. I, yeah. it, it seems to be that. One of the mistakes people make in seeking out talent is, you know, the the selection bias, right? You meet somebody, you really like them. And now your default is to read their resume, read their background, read these tests through a jaundiced eye, right? Or through a more positive biased eye, because you really like the person. On the other hand, if you didn't really kind of kid it off with that person, but they've got the skills, they got the talent, they got the desire. Well, so you kind of backfill, Right. Did you find yourself in that position ever? And, and are these tests a way to kind of normalize or neutralize some of that uh, selection bias or cognitive bias, as some people call it? I, I did it the reverse of what you're describing. I didn't meet the person first. I reviewed their paperwork and some of the testing before okay. I even met the individual. Uh, and sometimes it would surprise me. Someone on paper who looked really great was just not didn't have enough energy for what we were trying to accomplish for the organization when I met them in person. So um, it, it helps it for me anyway, to take a look at them on paper. That's why when I use that police chief example, I knew from the paperwork that we didn't have strong candidates. And San Antonio at the time didn't have a great reputation. There were several people who said, I will come to San Antonio because I know you have come from great city manager cities, you have a good reputation, I'd like an opportunity to work with you. But uh, they also said, let me know if you're gonna leave because I'm gonna leave them too. And I thought that's- That's not, a burden, man. That's not my goal. My goal is to create an organization with lots of talent. And by the time I left, I felt that the organization was a well-oiled machine. They were doing well, and they really didn't need me anymore. I mean, they they were doing so well. I was proud of their work, and I could I could go off into the sunset, you know. And and they would carry on. And they've 
they've done well, you know, timing's everything. COVID hit right after I <laughs> retired. And there was a moment when I, I felt like, oh, I need to be there and be in charge and help them. And then as it went on and on and on, I thought, well, they're doing just fine. They don't, they don't need me. You know, I was reading this uh, book about um, Rome and there was the premise of it was um, we always talk about the fall of Rome, the fall of Rome. And person said, you know, the Roman Empire existed for several hundred years and was, you know, spanned the, much of the known world and the globe. And so let's not focus on the fall of Rome, but the uh, the success of Rome. What made, you know, this still an, an unparalleled empire in world history. Um, but let me reverse that with you. We're talking about the success. How did, how did San Antonio get to where it was in a bad posture. And, and, and why I'm asking that question is, I'm sure there's a lot of listeners who are feeling like maybe things aren't going right in the city. And by learning about other people's mistakes, I remember reading this book by Jared Diamond called Collapse, about the collapse of societies. You learn about success by understanding other people's failures. Right. What was going, what 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 caused this to go so wrong and, and was it was it the elected council was there corruption was it just really bad management what 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 what, what created that scenario before you got there all of the above okay uh, thank you next question <laughs> <laughs> well first let me say san antonio had very short term limits so there was a lot of council turnover i worked with 47 different elected officials in 14 years including four mayors so we changed once we developed some greater trust and confidence in city government, uh, the mayor was able to introduce an initiative uh, to ex extend the term limits. So when I went to San Antonio, council members could only be elected twice for two years. So two two-year terms. And people were constantly turning over. Um, we did go to four two-year terms, I really I recommended two four-year terms because two years is just too short. You know, it's- You're always big, running for re-election. They're not. always running. You get about one year of productivity and you have to do so much training and education. So that was one thing um, that happened. But by the way, isn't it ironic if the cause of the problem is high turnover in city government, high turnover in the council makes the public less satisfied then you say, well, let's fix this by giving them longer terms because that makes sense. But to the public, they're like, wait a second, you want us to give them longer terms and they suck? You're like, yeah, because they'll suck less if they have more time <laughs> to percolate in office and understand. Well, the office, so. I think that's why we had four, uh, four two year terms. They said, no, we still want the ability to be able to vote, vote them out if they aren't doing a good job. Now, they liked the work that my staff and I were doing for the organization. And, and so they kind of dealt with the council in spite of, um, you know, them, them being there. I, I would, I would say too, on the management side, um, there was too much of a good old boy system in place in San Antonio where friends and family friends were hired and this person lost a job. So I'm going to give them a job. And instead of, really focusing on strong talent and making changes. Um, and then uh, thirdly, there was corruption. I, I'm embarrassed to say that I had to fire more people 
in my tenure in San Antonio than I did in the first 30 years of my career. And so it was, we had to develop strong ethics policies, ethics training. I tell a story in my book about um, the executive staff that I inherited wanted me to fire 300 people the first week I was on the job because those employees had been on pornography sites, websites on city computers, on city time. And, um, and of course, I asked for their technology policy, password policy, password protection policies, and ethics policies. They had none of that in place. And my reaction to that was, isn't management responsible here for not having the screens on the computers, for having those policies in place? I strongly believe that 98% of the employees are going to do the right thing if they understand the rules of engagement. Well, there goes your intentionality again, right? But yes. Yeah. I, so tell them, here's what I'm expecting of you. If you can do it and you do it well, you're going to be doing great. Uh, if you don't, you're going to be out. Well, and you know, it's funny. You would, you, you, you think if you you'd say, well, do we really need to have a policy that not to look at pornography? And I think what you're saying is the answer is yeah. Because this goes to a lot of what, you know, what I would call, you know, the Cheryl Scully school of thought here, which is set clear goals, set clear rules, set tell them with intentionality. And by the way, if you don't meet those metrics, you're out of here. Yeah, <laughs> accountability. Yeah, you have to be, have to be accountable. accountable. And so uh, by starting by saying, okay, clear rule, no pornography on the computer. If you do it, you're fired. Okay, right. I'm guessing once you put that policy in place, Everybody with five people stopped looking at pornography on their computers. Oh, well, and we had the screens in place. We did training. Yeah, we, and did I fire the 300? No, I did not on my first week on the job. Do I think they were guilty? Probably so. However, um, with civil service and arbitration, binding arbitration for police and fire, because there were police and fire personnel in that, uh, I knew that it would get overturned by an arbitrator. If you can't, you know, it's a 24-7 operation for a city. And if several people are using this computer, even though it's assigned to somebody, how do you know somebody else wasn't on it if there's no password protection? And, and so I, I knew that that was a loser and I'd spend so much time with attorneys and it'd all be overturned. I said, no, let's spend our time developing the training having the entire workforce go through the training, sign something that says, I went through the training. I understand the rules of engagement yeah. Yeah. and forward. And you know what? Miraculously, we had no more problems after that. No. And I could see the, I could see the arbitration hearing, which is a uh, uh, Mr. City manager, by the way, that's what you need to do as a new city manager, be sitting in 35 different arbitration hearings next week. Right. right. But yeah. can you show me on which page the policy is that says, um, you're not allowed to look at illicit pictures on the internet. You'd have to say there is no policy on that. Okay, that that's I rest my case, and now you're wasting your time. So I think you, by taking the high road, and you probably by setting clear expectations, the the inappropriate behavior using this, the company computers, as it were, probably went down. Just automatically. Yeah. And so that speaks then to hiring as well. When when other staff see the intentionality as you described it, of how we are managing staff, people want to be a part of that kind of organization. Now, I see what they're doing. They're serious about the work. They'll take action. People are held accountable. They're also rewarded for doing 
good work, um, then they want to be a part of that. And so it's part of that success breeds success kind of thinking. Yeah. So um, I want to shift gears to kind of the, the last segment. Tell us about your book. Uh, I, I love the title, <laughs> Greedy Bastards, One City's Texas Size Struggle. Uh, you always have to work in the Texas size thing, right? To avoid a financial crisis. Um, who were the greedy bastards? I can't take credit for my book's title. It was inspired by the police union president who accused my staff and I of characterizing them as greedy bastards because we were trying to remodel their collective bargaining agreements that had been put in place back in 1988 and just added upon over the years uh, without any structural change. They had free health care a legal fund that paid for their divorces, child custody disputes, criminal defense for DUIs and domestic violence. Uh, it, was, it was just on and on of this nonsense. In fact, the union president from 1988 uh, ended up being indicted and went, was sentenced, went to prison uh, for taking kickbacks from the attorneys that represented that legal fund. It, it was a mess and it was excessive by any metric. And so from a financial standpoint, I'm a data-driven person, I showed the city council that their contracts were going to consume 100% of the city's general fund budget by the year 2030 if we didn't do something to change those collective bargaining agreements. And it became most evident during the Great Recession where we didn't increase taxes, but our revenue was down year over year. But because those contracts were in place, I couldn't reduce them and they wouldn't voluntarily uh, participate yeah, of not. In, in the furloughs that everyone else was taking during that time frame. And so we had to cut back on those other important services and their public safety grew to more than two thirds of the city's general fund budget leaving everything else, streets, parks, libraries, everything else, um, to one third of the budget. And, and so I said, we need to address this now before it's a crisis. Will we let this happen? Of course not. But why wait? Let's address it now by remodeling. And I had done that on the civilian side. It's so much easier to fix a problem that if you say in year one, I can see that in year 10, we're going to be way off course Let's readjust now before it gets so bad. And Something that's the and, government should yeah. have done like with Social Security, right? We you keep saying, oh, we're going to fall off a cliff. Well, fix it a little bit now. Have the courage to do so now so you don't have to, you don't have, it doesn't have to break first, right? Right. And that's that's really what I was trying to do. But with two-year term limits, council members are like, oh, I don't want to take on the police and fire unions. I want them to endorse me when I run again. Yeah. You know, it's uh, and they had actually um, the unions had gone to the state, had an exemption from the city's charter that allowed them to work on city council campaigns and uh, endorse candidates. And so and contribute through their you know political action committees, big sums of money. And they would basically blackmail the city council members and say, if you don't give me what I want in this contract, we're going to run a candidate against you. And because they had phone banks and all this off-duty officer time that they could go campaign for people. I mean, most people love their firefighters. Uh, a lot of people, I mean, back then, loved their police officers, wanted to feel safe. 
And the law enforcement endorsement is, and the firefighters endorsement is the gold standard if you're running for office. Yep, it sure is. So it was hard. In fact, one of our congressmen, um, I talked with him, we we were friends and and he said, you know, Cheryl, it's uh, you're doing the right thing, but it's it's hard to take on somebody in uniform, especially after 9-11, because I took this on 10 years after 9-11. So it was, you know, right after the Great Recession. And it took six years. We were successful, but it was pain, it was a painful and really dirty process. So why did I use um, my union president's saying? Uh, yeah. I, I did it to demonstrate just how far they were willing to go, even if it hurt the city. They didn't care. They they basically said, um, "We are we're important, and if you have to cut other things, that's that's okay. Then cut." Or they told me, "If you can't afford what we got in 1988, raise taxes." And I said, "Easy for you to say. You guys don't live in the city. In fact, less than half." of police and fire actually live in San Antonio. And I would say that's probably the case in many major cities where they don't have a residency requirement. And, you know, it's funny because Chief McManus and I were part of President Obama's 21st century policing initiative after the Ferguson episode. And one of the tenets of that was that police officers should live in the communities that they serve. And so because I couldn't require residency, I, I did initiate a uh, housing subsidy program. And I was really targeting those new police officers coming yeah. in, first-time home buyers, buy a house, we'll subsidize, you know, we'll help you with the down payment, double if you're inside, you know, the inner city, but you know, anywhere in the city, you get something. We had some takers, but but not a lot, not enough to make a difference when you have nearly 3,000 uniform personnel. Yeah, that's a lot. Uh, Cheryl Scully, what's uh, what's next? <laughs> what's next? Um, good question. Um, I'm still staying very busy serving on nonprofit boards. I do serve on a corporate board. Uh, and I'm getting involved in, in Austin. I'm uh, on the Downtown Alliance, Downtown Austin Alliance Board and chairing the Committee on Public Space Experience, Translation, Security, and Homelessness. So I'm uh, kind of up to my eyeballs on uh, what every major city is dealing with with regard to homelessness. We built a comprehensive homeless campus and center in San Antonio while I was city manager. So I'm, I'm using some of those best practices as we address some of the issues here in Austin. Another book on the horizon, maybe? Maybe. I mean, um, when you hit number one, I mean, that's like, what you are. <laughs> the other part, you're like, no, 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 I'm, I'm, I, I touched that stone and I'm done. I don't know if I could come up with a title as great as Greedy Bastards. Uh, it's, uh, I don't know if you've seen the book. I, I, I pulled one out so you could even, so you could take a look at it. Um, yeah, it's um, it was cathartic for me to actually write the book. You know, when you come off of 45 years as uh, in city management, um, I needed some decompression time. So it was, uh, it, yeah, it was good for me to get things down in paper and think through issues. And now to talk about it and reflect has been a lot of fun. And I'm I'm enjoying helping other city managers who have many of these very same challenges. 
Well, and thank you for the keynote and thank you for being with us because that's exactly what you're doing. I mean, your insights, Cheryl, uh, really amazing. I mean, I, I can't, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at you. I can't believe you, you when you say 40 years. I keep thinking she needs 14. So she really means she was doing it for 14 years. Um, good genes. Good genes. Yeah, good genes. That's what it was. Uh, well, uh, you've, you've aged with intentionality. How about that? Uh, well, thank uh, like everything you. else you've done. Uh, really appreciate it. I know we ran a little over time. I told you 35 to 40 minutes. We're pushing 55 minutes, but that's okay. Uh, really valuable. I appreciate your service very, very much. Thank you so much for being on. Well, thank you, Steve. I enjoyed it. Well, folks, this is Steve Van Cor, and this has been the FCCMA Podcast, a service produced by and for the City and County Management Association. I hope you enjoyed being with Cheryl and myself as much as I did interviewing her. Cheryl, you're a rock star. Thanks for being on. <laughs> Thanks so much, Steve. Have All a right. great day. You too.